title of the message, The Announcement of Christ's Herald. Last week in the book sermon that we gave on the book of Luke, uh, I gave you some insight into the nature of the gospel of Luke and how it differs from the other gospels, its general themes. Luke is an interesting gospel in that it begins, unless you kind of want to get technical, it begins at the earliest point of history in any of the Gospels. Technically, John begins with, in the beginning was the word, right? So, so I guess we could technically say that, that John is the earliest as far as history goes. But when we talk about human history prior to the pre-existent, uh, ever-existent Christ, Luke starts a full six months before Jesus Christ is even conceived. And that is unique in the gospel narratives, whereas the majority of the gospels, uh, the other gospels, all begin at least with Christ's birth, if not already into his ministry. Along uh, the timeline of, wor of world events, the gospel of Luke initiates this, this history with John the Baptist and the announcement of his conception well before his birth. And Luke desires to announce the miraculous events surrounding this one who would become the herald of Jesus Christ's ministry in order to help us understand the fulfillment of the prophetic record. Over the next two weeks, we're going to consider this announcement. There's going to be a little bit of overlap between this week and then next week we'll have a special message for Resurrection Sunday. But the week after, there will be a little bit of overlap as we consider... Um, Zacharias and, and his response to the angel and to this announcement. But this morning, we're going to look at the facts. We're going to exposit the passage, objectively understand what's going on here. And we're also going to consider together uh, one little snippet that I think will be a great encouragement to us in regard to prayer as we walk through the text. So let's dig right in this morning because we are uh, short on time. So let's, let's uh, dig in, and, and I might go a little bit faster than normal, so hang on here. Our text begins with an introduction. He says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Luke expresses here that many had sought to set forth these events in Jesus' life. Certainly we have at least three other people, right, through the three other Gospels. We know that Josephus also set forth some events and that there were various other men who wrote down the history of Jesus Christ, many of which were not inspired, uh, such as Josephus, and yet they were still recording the history of Jesus Christ's life and ministry. We mentioned uh, also last week that Luke is the account that gives us the chronological record. We'll see that in verse 3. Here we see him say that he is setting forth in order. That doesn't mean chronologically. That simply means he is arranging, he is compiling together some facts to put down about Jesus Christ. Luke makes a point to emphasize the reality that, that the events of Jesus' life are, are most assuredly or most surely believed among us. The question arises whether the reader is included in this statement, and most likely he is not. He's writing to a man named Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, as we'll see in just a few moments. And the us seems to imply that, that the ones who have compiled these things, the ones who are representing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the apostles and their um, companions are the us there, these things are most assuredly believed, and now he's trying to write to this man to convince him of or to give him the facts. We also find here that Luke makes it clear he was not one of the men who was with Jesus from the beginning, and that he was not one of those original ministers of the gospel. Notice what he says here. He says, even as they delivered them unto us. So they delivered the facts unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses. That would be them were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They were eyewitnesses, they were ministers of the word, and they delivered these facts to me. He says, I am compiling them. And he goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Luke states here that he, though not an eyewitness, through his associations and through his research, have a perfect understanding, that, that not meaning flawless, but a complete understanding of everything having to do with the elements of the life of Christ that he is about to relate. He states that he has learned 
the accurate events. In other words, he says, a lot of people are writing a lot of things, but I can guarantee you that these are accurate. These are, these are based upon eyewitness accounts, accurate accounts of Jesus Christ's life and teaching. And here we find that he does mention that he's writing in chronological order. When he, he says here that he is writing unto him in order. The word translated in order there literally means successively. That he's writing successively, one thing after another, the events of Jesus Christ's life and ministry. He then mentions his audience, a man named Theophilus, who he calls most excellent Theophilus. And this leads us to believe that Theophilus may have been someone somewhat important in the Roman Empire. There were only two other men that we find in Luke's writings who he called most excellent. They're both found not in the book of Luke, but in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. We mentioned that last week. In Acts 23:26 and Acts 24:3, he calls Felix, a Roman procurator, most excellent. And then in, verse, in Acts 26, 25, he calls a man named Festus most excellent. He was the man that actually replaced Felix as procurator in Judea. And so the procurators, procurators being men that were effectively governors, they were given authority over a particular region. They were pretty minimal in their authority, but authority nonetheless. These men were called most excellent, which leads us to believe that Theophilus may have been one of these procurators as well. He may have been a leader of some sort in the Roman government, and he had a position of authority, and Luke is seeking to relay to him the events surrounding Jesus Christ's life, death, and then as we get into the book of Acts, the life of the early church. Luke also gives his purpose. He says that Theophilus would know the certainty of the things with which he's been told. So Theophilus says, I've heard a bunch of stuff, and he probably, it probably happened kind of like this. Theophilus is a man who's seeking to be convinced, or maybe he has believed, but he's looking for facts, and he says a lot of people are saying a lot of different things. You can read uh, various church traditions about Jesus Christ, about his, his, um, his childhood and these sorts of things, and find that there's a lot of misinformation out there about Jesus Christ. All the way until today, there's a great deal of misinformation, and so Luke writes to him and says, look, I don't want you to get the wrong idea, so I wrote down the facts. These are eyewitness facts from men who were there that followed Christ, apostles of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we know now that Luke is also inspired by the Holy Spirit and therefore is 100% trustworthy. Now, the story of the Gospel of Luke actually begins in a prophecy in Malachi. Malachi was the final written prophecy in the Old Testament. Following the ministry of Malachi, the word of the Lord would not be heard in the nation of Israel for about 450 years. These were called, and are still called in theological circles, the silent years, years where God was not speaking to his people. Malachi was a prophet, a writing prophet, like many of the, the minor prophets we call them. Malachi's was the last. After Malachi, it was silent. No more prophets. No more thus saith the Lord. Until the very events of Luke chapter 1 that we're learning about this morning. And Malachi's final words are extremely important. Let me read to you Malachi 4. You've got it up there on the screen. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day, of the, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth, and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So in this final prophecy of the Old Testament, we, we read a promise. We read several promises. First, the promise of Messiah, that in the days of darkness there would be one, a son of righteousness, who would arise, literally uh, like a sunrise, the, the S-U-N there. It's not S-O-N of righteousness. It's S-U-N, son of righteousness, shall arise, a daybreak, which is why Simeon calls the infant Christ 
the day spring from on high. A daybreak would arise with healing in his wings, the rays, with healing. And then he promises them that as this happens, he, he tells them, he says, remember the law of Moses, remember my statutes and judgments. Then he says, and I'm going to send Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord. The final two verses, the day of the Lord is announced and Elijah, he says, would come and would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. We'll talk about that more in just a little bit. With this important prophecy in mind, however, let, let's open up the historical record. That was all kind of introductory from Luke to Theophilus. In verses 5 and 6, we see the beginning of the historical record here. He says, There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So Zechariah was a priest, which tells us definitively that he's a Levite, and the text tells us that he is of the course of Abiah. These courses that we read about of the Levites, they were not something that was prescribed by the law. It was actually instituted in the days of King David. We'll learn in some months in 2 Samuel that David gets it in his mind and in his heart that he wants to build a house for the Lord. He wants to build a temple, whereas the Lord has always been in a tabernacle. The difference, a tabernacle being made of tents, the temple would be a permanent structure. And so David desires to do this. We know uh, as, as we study that, we'll find out, but many of you know he was not allowed to do that because he was a bloody man, a man of war. Instead, Solomon had the privilege of doing that. But this also presented a unique problem. See, because in the Levitical order, if you read through Leviticus, you find that the Levites had been all given duties before the Lord. And these duties were prescribed to them by family. Now, you had the family of Aaron who got the high priest duties, but then you had all of the other families of the Levites who had been given different duties. And these duties were things such as to, to uh, take care of the, the, the tent, uh, the material, the fabric for the tent. Another to erect and dismantle and to carry and to take care of the, the poles, the tent poles, the staves, to take care of the outer wall, to take care of the foundation. And all of these different tasks and duties had been given to these Levites. Now, if you've got a permanent building, then these duties are no longer necessary. You don't need anybody to take care of the, the, the tent material where, where that's no longer there. You don't need anybody to take care of and to carry and to watch out for this this foundation, this mobile foundation, because the foundation has been set. And so what are they going to do with these Levites, these Levites who don't have these ministry opportunities anymore? And so David split the Levitical families into 24 courses. And these courses would minister in the temple, in the temple directly for one week from Sabbath to Sabbath, and then another family would take over, and then there would be a rotation where for several months out of the year, each of these courses would have duties within the temple, and then they would go home. And so they'd stay at the temple for a while, and then they'd be able to come home. And there were 24 of these. Now, according to Ezra chapter 2, verses 34 to 39, only four of those 24 courses actually returned from captivity, from the captivity of Babylon. So Israel goes into Babylon, only four of the 24 courses returned. Only four of the 24 Levitical families. All the rest stayed in Babylon. So in the days of Ezra, they took those four families and they actually split those four families up into 24 divisions. And they named each division according to the original courses from the days of David. And those became the 24 courses that ministered throughout the year in the temple. Zechariah was of the course of Abiah, or Abijah, which would have made him the eighth course for the year, according to 1 Chronicles 24.10. And we read as well that his wife was a Levite, her name being Elizabeth, and the text tells us that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and the ordinances of God. These were men, this was a man and a woman of genuine faith, those that had accepted the revelation of God. They were not just living in the legalistic law of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had identified 
the, and, and God through the law. They loved God. They knew God. And they were walking according to the ways of the Lord. These were truly righteous, a, a, a truly righteous couple in the eyes of the Lord. Now, by, we, by way of deeper context to their lives, we read in verse 7, they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. So Elizabeth was barren. She could not have children and now she was old. She was beyond the age where women could have children. As we understand Hebrew culture, we recognize how big of a deal this is. In Hebrew culture, women were quite literally defined by their capacity to give birth, by the children that they had. We read earlier when we were walking through our first Samuel series, just prior to our Luke series, that Hannah told her husband, give me children or else I die. That it was so important that women have children that if they could not have children, that they might as well be dead. Elizabeth had lived the bulk of her days in such a state, in such an emotional condition. No doubt at this point the couple was resigned to the reality. They were both really old. Elizabeth couldn't even have children anymore. They're past that age. They're never going to have a child. But, but in this case, Elizabeth was in pretty good spiritual company, wasn't she? In fact, we find throughout the biblical record that God would often use miraculous births, giving women children that were barren, as a means by which to highlight the important, the important nature of the child. That he would use a barren woman to have a child when that child was going to be of extra importance to be sure that all Israel knew that this child was of importance. That was the case with Abraham, whose wife Sarah was barren until receiving Isaac in her, her old age. And Isaac and Rebekah, Abraham's son and, and daughter-in-law, Rebecca could not have children until Isaac prayed for her. Manoah and his wife, his wife was barren until such time as the angel announced that they were going to have a child. And Samson, the great judge, was born. Elkanah and Hannah, we mentioned already from 1 Samuel. Hannah could not have a child. She prayed unto the Lord and Samuel was given to them. In each of these cases, these children had been consecrated unto a great purpose before the Lord. And indeed, this child would be no different. We continue in verses 8 and 9. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So Zechariah's lot, his responsibility on this day was to burn incense. We know from the scriptures that the burning of incense was indicative of prayer. That as the incense would go up to the Lord, so too do the prayers of his saints. And so at the time of prayer every day, the incense would be burned. More, more accurately, at the time of the incense, people would pray. It was called the time of prayer because they recognized the close link between this symbolic incense going up to the Lord and the importance of prayer unto God. Now, there's debate as to exactly what that means for this day. Many people believe that this was the Sabbath day because of the time of prayer. Um, others would disagree. Either way, Zechariah is ministering this time for the incense. We continue in verses 10 and 12. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. The people were outside praying. Zechariah was inside offering the incense. And then something absolutely incredible happened. After 450 years of silence from the Lord, an angel appears under Zechariah. The first time there has been any direct revelation from God since that passage we read in Malachi 4. This angel appears. Talk about a monumental event. And the text tells us when Zechariah saw this angel, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. This event was not just grand. It was, it was troubling. It was fearful. Often when we think of angels, we think of something beautiful or majestic. And yet... In almost every account of an angel appearing to a man, we read that the man was fearful or troubled. It's a fearful thing to have an angel appear unto you. Whether this fear is compelled by their appearance or simply the initiation of divine interaction, this is a trend that we see through Scripture that when men had angels appear unto them, they were 
afraid. It's a fearful thing. The angel's message begins in verse 13 and 14, and he says this. Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. The angel says what most angels say when the man or woman is terrified. He says, fear not. There's no need to fear. I'm not here to execute judgment. I'm here to declare something joyous. Then he says, thy prayer is heard. We'll talk about this at the end. And he told Zacharias that his wife would bear a son, that the child's name would be John, that the angel, and the angel says that there would be great joy and gladness at his birth. And that many would rejoice with him. Now, the joy and gladness part we all get, right? And, and, and even among the family. We announced today that uh, my wife is going to have another child in September. And, and Lord willing, if all goes as planned, there will be great joy and gladness on that day. And we'll be happy and we'll call the family, the church family and, and, uh, and our blood family and we'll tell them. And there will be joy and rejoicing. And, and that's to be understood. But, but he says here, beyond that, many shall rejoice at his birth. He's, he's telling Zacharias here, this is not just going to be a family rejoicing. This is, this is bigger than that. John is going to make many, many people very, very happy because he's... he's declaring something. He's symbolic of something. Something, he, his, his appearance is initiating the appearance of your Messiah. And that's a joyful thing. The impact of John's birth would extend well beyond his own household. And so many would rejoice. He continues in verses 15 and 16 with the announcement, for he shall be great that's John, this child. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he, shall he turn unto the Lord, their God. The angel first says that the child would drink neither wine nor strong drink. The characteristic of drinking no alcoholic beverages in Jewish culture was unique to one group of people, well, two groups of people, it was unique to the priests who were not allowed to drink anything alcoholic, and then to one who took the vow of the Nazarite. I won't read the whole passage, but, but we'll consider a few snippets, and then we'll, we'll summarize the vow. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, the Bible says, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of the Nazarite, to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar or, of wine or vinegar of strong drink, neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. So the definitive characteristic of the Nazarite was that he would separate himself from any of the fruit of the vine, anything that was fermented. The text goes on to state, uh, we won't read it, but that the Nazarite was also um, one who was not supposed to touch his hair and was not supposed to touch anything dead or defiled. And this would be only until he ends his vow. Now, the vow of the Nazarite was intended to be a temporary vow. It was not intended to be a, long, uh, a, a relatively long-term thing. It was a temporary vow, and it represented the very highest degree of ceremonial purity. That when a person decided they wanted to really consecrate themselves to the Lord, they would take a vow of a Nazarite, and for a temporary time period, they would not cut their hair, they would not drink anything fermented or of the fruit of the vine, and they would not come into contact with anything unclean, lest they break their vow. And this was the vow of the Nazarite. The fact that the, the vow of the Nazarite was the very pinnacle of the law, it was the very pinnacle of ceremonial consecration, is very important. Let me just give you, we'll talk about this a little bit more in Luke 3, but, but Jesus Christ's herald lived a life epitomized by the very deepest of ceremonial consecration in the law. The law, the greatest representative of the law, was announcing Christ. And that's very important theologically. We'll, we'll talk about it in Luke 3. Now, the law was indeed intended, the, the Nazarite vow, excuse me, was intended to be temporary. However, there are, as best we can tell, three instances in Scripture where God asked someone to take a lifelong 
to live under the, the, a lifelong Nazarite commitment. The first would be in Judges chapter 13 with Samson. Samson was to be a, a Nazarite from birth. He was supposed to not cut his hair, not touch anything unclean, and, and we, we know how, how that went. The second, from what we can tell, is 1 Samuel. It, one, where, where we read of Samuel and the announcement of Samuel's birth and that he was not to cut his hair and that he was, he was not to, to partake in these things. Likely he was a Nazarite as well. And then here, in John, we see this expectation that John would be a Nazarite from birth. These three men, distinctive in that their Nazarite vow was not intended to be temporary. And the text continues. Uh, the angel announces that John would be filled with the Holy Ghost from the womb. In our time in 1 Samuel, we spent some time considering the difference between the Holy Spirit filling and salvation. We were careful to emphasize that they are nowhere near the same thing, right? That a man could be filled with the Holy Spirit completely apart from any statement regarding whether or not he had accepted the revealed word of God and thus he was righteous in God's sight. Of the Holy Spirit's many roles, the role of sealing men into the day of redemption and bringing them into justification in the eyes of God is not what is in view here. He is not announcing, the angel is not announcing that, that John would have the indwelling Holy Spirit from birth, that he'd be saved from birth. The Bible tells us that every man will stand before the Lord having made a conscious, volitional decision, either yea or nay, either for or against. This is not saying that John would be saved from birth. This was saying that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth or from the womb. Remember in 1 Samuel, when Saul was anointed king, and the scriptures tell us that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul, and he began to prophesy, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he could do the work of being king. But then when he finally rejected the Lord for that last time, the scriptures tell us that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord came upon him. This is not Saul getting saved and being unsaved. This is the empowering the empowerment of the Holy Spirit unto ministry, the filling of the Holy Spirit to do the ministry that God had called Saul to do. And that is the idea in question here. That John was being divinely filled from the womb to a particular ministry. And that ministry is to herald the Messiah. He was going to be given Holy Spirit divine capacity to do the job that he was called to do. To announce the Messiah. We'll find later in the chapter that, in fact, John does, even in the womb, leap in his mother's womb, declaring the importance of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 16 says that he would turn many. Many of the hearts of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And that was going to be his purpose. Now, the final piece of this announcement is in verse 17. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This final element of the announcement is that John would come in the spirit and power of Elias and he would come as a precursor to him, to God, to the Lord, to the Messiah. Now one might ask, why, are, why is this name changed? Who is Elias? And we know that this is, in fact, Elijah. Why the name change? We find in our King James Version that the name Isaiah in the Old Testament is Esaias in the New Testament. The name Elijah is Elias. The name Elisha is Eli... Eli <laughs> let, 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 me, let me try again here. Elisius. Elisius. This is really a translator's decision. Today, when a name is transferred from one language to another, it's not always left untouched, is it? In France, the name Stephen is Etienne. In Mexico, the name John is Juan. And so we find that in various cultures, names, though they're the same name, might change appearance a little bit, might change form a little bit, might change sound a little bit. And this for various reasons. Sometimes it's a cultural thing. Other times it's because the alphabet of one language does not have all of the sounds of the alphabet of another language. 
Such was the case in Hebrew and Greek culture. The Hebrew alphabet does not have all the same sounds as the Greek alphabet. And so there had to be some changes in the way that the, the name was written in order, and, and the name was said. It was quite common, in fact, in translating Hebrew to Greek. Now, many of the modern translations will make that leap for you, and they'll take Isaiah, and in the Greek, it'll say Esaias, but they'll put Isaiah in, and that's fine. Uh, that, that increases understanding. You just need to know. You need to know which one is which, that Isaiah is Esaias, that Elijah is Elias, that Elisha is uh, Elysius. And, you know, this is even true of the name Jesus, is it not? The name Jesus was a Greek name, the Hebrew equivalent being Yahashua, Joshua. The name Joshua in the Hebrew is the name Jesus in the Greek. And even as we say the name Jesus, Jesus is not his Greek name. Jesus was his Greek name. Jesus is the English equivalent of Jesus, which is the Greek equivalent of Yahashua, which in its English equivalent is Joshua. So we see this happening, right? This, this, this should not throw us uh, that we, we see these disparities because we know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and the New Testament was written in Greek and that there's bound to be some translational differences when it comes to names and proper names and such. Well, Malachi, remember, promised that Elijah would come before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. And indeed, John would be that one, this angel says, that would come in the spirit and power of Elijah, thus fulfilling this prophecy. Jesus himself would verify that John is the Elijah that would come. Now, does this mean that this is the only Elijah that will come? Does this mean that this prophecy is completely fulfilled? There's debate about this. Not necessarily. I would contend that quite possibly no. That that John is part of a dual fulfillment of Elijah's coming. That there will be another Elijah, perhaps the, the actual Elijah that comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And what I speak of when I speak of this is the concept of dual fulfillment in prophecy. Dual fulfillment takes place when a single prophetic utterance has two historical fulfillments. The first fulfillment, I hope that's I hope that's, that's not very readable. I apologize for that. The first fulfillment is what I'd call the near partial fulfillment. And then the second fulfillment is the far complete fulfillment. Now, the near partial fulfillment is still unmistakable in that it fulfills the prophecy. But there are elements of the prophecy that it might not completely fulfill so that you might know that there's a, another one coming a far complete fulfillment, the fullest realization of the prophecy itself. The most common biblical example of this is found in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, there's a prophecy of one who would come called the abomination of desolation. And the Bible tells us that this abomination of desolation would be a man who desecrates the temple and he sets himself on the throne in the temple. And we see a prophetic fulfillment of this, a near partial prophetic fulfillment of the, of the abomination of desolation in the man named Antiochus Epiphanes when in 167 BC he walked into the temple being the Syrian king he sacrificed a pig upon the altar and he erected a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. He totally desecrated the temple. He was the abomination that makes desolate so much so that in, in the Maccabees he's called the abomination of desolation. Now, if that's all we had from history, we would just assume that that's it. He is the abomination of desolation. The prophecy is fulfilled, but it's not. Because when Jesus walks the earth and his disciples say, tell us what it's going to be like at the end of the world in Matthew chapter 24. In verse 15, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, then you better run. He says at the end of the world, there's coming a day when the abomination of desolation is coming. And he was speaking of Antichrist, the one that would come. And even in the book of Daniel, as we look at this abomination of desolation, Antiochus Epiphanes perfectly fits that one prophecy of desecrating the temple, but he doesn't fit everything else the abomination of desolation is intended to do, which is literally to place himself on the throne in the temple. Antiochus didn't do that. He put Zeus on the throne, effectively. And so we see a near partial fulfillment, and we see a complete 
farther fulfillment that's coming yet in history. And this happens in prophecy sometimes. A near partial and a, and a um, far complete. Why would God do this? Well, the near partial fulfillment is a way of validating the far complete. Because we see the near partial in history, we can rest assured the far complete will come. It's like a, maybe a checkpoint along the way. And the same might be said of John the Baptist here. This is what many contend, and I, I think it's, it's a valid assumption. I'm not saying it's 100%, but it's possible. In this instance, we would see the prophecy that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And John the Baptist is this one who would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He would perform his ministry of reconciliation. The people would know that the day of the Lord is at hand. Jesus states plainly that John is the Elijah that would come if they would receive it. The angel references plainly that John would, would, would come in that spirit and that power, that he would reconcile the hearts of the children to the fathers. And yet I cannot help but wonder if maybe a, a second fulfillment will be at hand. Today, in the Seder Supper, which the, the um, Jews, the Orthodox Jews, will be partaking in uh, in just a couple of days, during that Seder Supper, if you remember from last year when we had Missionary Bergman come, there was a seat left empty for Elijah. And there was a cup that they would fill for Elijah because they're looking for that Elijah to come. Now, Jesus says, if you will receive it, John is that Elijah that's ushering in the Messiah. And yet this Elijah is also said to usher in the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord that will come as a thief in the night, the day of the Lord that will bring the final judgment the second coming of our Lord. And it could very well be that Elijah might come. As we look into the book of Revelation, there's two witnesses, right? And many people believe those two witnesses, one of whom might be Elijah. So that Elijah might come before the actual Elijah might come. Could be a dual fulfillment. I, I introduce that to you. I present that to you as a possibility that we might be looking at a dual fulfillment there. John and then actual Elijah, John as the near partial fulfillment, and then a future Elijah as the far complete fulfillment. Now the final question that we ask before we move out of this verse, what does it mean that he turned the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers? And again, this is debated. But I would, uh, as, I, as I present it, I would present it this way, and I believe that it's probably a pretty solid answer. The hearts of the children would be turned back to the same kind of obedience and belief and faith of the patriarchs. And I believe that's what's being said here, that, that John would, would encourage God's people who were steeped in this legalistic way of life, and he would turn their hearts back to the hearts of their fathers, back to the kind of heart that truly loved the Lord, a heart of faith and a heart of belief and a heart of zeal. So Zechariah's response in verse 18 is actually a little bit less than enthusiastic. You'd think he'd be pretty excited, but notice what he says. Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am old, and my wife is well stricken in years. He immediately sees the physical limitations hindering this announcement. He's old. His wife is old. His wife is beyond birthing years. There are physical limitations here. Angel who has appeared to me after 450 years of silence divinely in the temple. There's some physical limitations here that I'm concerned with. And he allows these physical limitations to cloud the issue, to cloud the miracle, to cloud the announcement. Zechariah is essentially saying, you need to prove to me that this is true. How can I know that what you're saying is actually going to come to pass? Now, God has been known from time to time to be a bit sarcastic with people. But his angels never really have been. God, God is from time to time, especially in the prophets. He, he gets sarcastic. He gets a little snarky. But, 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 but the angels, the angels, they, they, they tend to shoot pretty straight. God needs not prove anything to anyone. But one would think if Zechariah had shut his mouth and processed the information for a few more moments, that a divine angelic being audibly speaking to him probably would have been proof enough. Uh, but he said what he said, and uh, the angel will have a response for him. And that response is found in verses 19 and 20. This will finish our exposition for today. 
the angel says, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. The angel introduces himself. He says, let me, let me tell you a little bit more about this situation, John. I'm Gabriel. Now, the last time Gabriel had been experienced by a man was when Daniel was on his knees praying and an angel came to him and said, I'm Gabriel. This is, this is a pretty exclusive angel here that John is meeting. And, and he says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. A little chill goes down my spine when I think of this idea. Maybe he stands up a bit taller and says, I am Gabriel. Kind of a, why are you questioning me? I, I stand in the presence of the Almighty God, and you are questioning whether or not what I'm saying is true. Have you read Daniel, Zacharias? You, you remember that angel that told him all those things that have surely come to pass? That's me. I have an age today. That's me. The phrase we use today is don't look a gift horse in the mouth. The idea being that when, when, when you're given a horse, don't, don't right? Because horse, their, their teeth never stop growing. So you can open the mouth of a horse and you can see how old it is by its teeth. If you're given a horse, you don't, 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 don't look in his mouth. Don't, don't judge it. Just accept it, right? If someone were to come up after church and say, Pastor, I want to give you my three-year-old car. I wouldn't go and say, hmm, it doesn't have leather seats. I don't know about this. I'd say, well, thank you. That's great. I could use one of those. Gabriel had just appeared and told Zacharias that he's going to have his prayer. A prayer that was probably, we'll talk about this more in a moment, decades old. Answered. His wife is going to have a child. Validated by an angelic messenger who stands in the presence of God. And Zacharias wants proof. So Gabriel gives him proof. He says, Zacharias, you will not be allowed to speak until the day that all of these things come to pass. You want proof? Well, if you get to speak again, then you'll know that I, that I was speaking the truth. If you never get to speak again, then rest assured I was lying to you. Not, not a great deal for Zacharias, but a deal which he brought on himself. And likely, as we'll see next week or in, in the weeks to come, he probably didn't just go dumb. He probably went deaf as well. Say, so how do we know that? Well, because... When the people are communicating with Zacharias to find out what the name of his son should be, the Bible says they signaled to him as to what the name of his son should be. It doesn't say they spoke to him. It says they signaled to him. If he could hear, why would they need to signal to him? So we'll talk about that, and we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit more. But likely, uh, we know that he at least could not speak. And we'll, we'll talk about that more. But, but as we finish today, I don't want to focus in on Zechariah's lack of faith because we're going to contrast that with Mary next time and that'll be our focus. Today I want to go back to just this little phrase that's easy to overlook that Gabriel says to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 when he appears before him and he says unto him in verse 13, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard. I just want to give one application, one, one bit of encouragement to you this morning. You've been given a good deal of information today, but, but, but this little phrase. Later in the text, we'll find that Zechariah' doubts and fears are rooted in the fact that his wife Elizabeth was well stricken in years, that she was beyond the, the years of childbearing. Assuming that Zechariah and Elizabeth, being pious and godly man and woman, had been consistent in their prayer. This is what you do, right? You're consistent in your prayer, asking for that which the Lord, which you would desire of the Lord, as long as there was hope. We can assume that Zechariah and Elizabeth, probably until the, the time where she was no longer able to have children biologically, were, were, that she was praying for children, praying for a child. Now, if they were well beyond that, if they were well stricken in years, how long do you think it had been since they had prayed that prayer? Five years? Ten years? Fifteen years? Since the last time that they had prayed that prayer? Since the last time where there was hope that there might be a child, so they prayed? Lord, would you give us a child? Might it have been two decades or three decades since that prayer was uttered? 
since that prayer came out of the lips of Zacharias? Lord, would you give my wife a child? Could it have been 30 years? Could have been. And yet, as the angel Gabriel appears before Zacharias, he doesn't just say, you're going to have a baby. He says, thy prayer is heard. God heard you all those times. That time. That prayer was heard. Don't think it wasn't, Zacharias. You've been asking for this. Now God is ready to give it to you. God's ways aren't our ways, are they? You and I pray for things. But one of the things about human nature is that often when we make a request, it's not just the request that we're bringing before the Lord. We're also in our minds thinking of how we want that request to be borne out. Right? Lord, give me a child. And by that, I am assuming in this time frame. Lord, provide for my family. Give me that job. Give me that house. Give me that car. And I'm assuming within that, that because I'm erecting in my mind how God could answer this prayer, right? And I mean, it, it's this and it's that. And, and we've got these particulars in place. And we erect not just, we don't just make the request, but we kind of, we, we erect an entire life around that request, an entire character. Not just the request itself, but how that answer will come. Perhaps for years, Zechariah regarded his prayer as a failure because the child they had asked for had not come. When in fact, God had heard that prayer and he desired to give them that child and he would give them that child, but he was waiting for his time to come to pass. Perhaps it is that we've been praying for something. You've been praying for something. And it hasn't been realized as you might have desired or expected. And you assume that it's just not for you. But maybe that's not it. Maybe it's that God's way isn't your way. That God's timing isn't your timing. Maybe it's that you have a preconceived idea, not just of God answering the prayer, but of how you want him to answer the prayer. And so if God hasn't answered it the way you thought, you just assumed it went unheeded, unheard, ignored. Maybe God is doing something special and he wants to answer your prayer in a special way. Maybe he's already answered it and you didn't see it because you're so busy stuck on the way you wanted it answered that you didn't see the way he actually gave it to you. Maybe it's going to take time. Maybe you need to be patient. Zacharias and Elizabeth prayed for years, presumably. And presumably their prayers had stopped. So much so that it seems from this passage that Zacharias kind of didn't even think of it as an answered prayer. He just wants proof. According to their expectations, according to the limited way within which they operated, they didn't get it. They thought that the answer was impossible. They thought they couldn't have it anymore. His wife is past the age of bearing children. But God doesn't regard those limitations, does he? So what does this mean for us today? Well, it means we can trust God with our requests. When we pray to God, we lift our requests unto him, requests for provision and for opportunities and for successes. Uh, not, not really things that need answers. The day-to-day, -day, Lord, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? We, we pray those expecting that because there's a time frame, I need to know whether or not you want me to do that or to do this. We, 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 we expect those answers right away. We expect the Spirit of God to guide us in the way that we should go. But when it comes to those things which um, are just requests, not necessarily dire need of his answer right away because to take the next step type stuff. We go to God and, and perhaps we do so with a, a willing heart to receive, but we've, we're so stuck on the way we think we want him to answer that prayer that we, we lose heart or we miss it. Today's text reminds us that when we go to God, not only should our will be yielded, but our expectation about how God will answer that prayer should be yielded as well. Zacharias prayed for a child. <laughs> Little could he have understood how it was God was going to bring that about. Little could he have possibly imagined 
There's no frame of reference within which when Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth could still have children, they were thinking, we're going to get old and you're going to be beyond birthing years and then you're going to have a child in your old age. Th that, that wouldn't have even been on the board of possibilities. And yet that was God's answer. That was God's way. Their prayer had been heard. And maybe you're praying for something today and you've given up hope. Maybe you perceive the window of opportunity has been closed for that person to be saved that you've been praying for for 10 years. Maybe that window of opportunity has been closed for that provision or that need or that desire. Maybe you perceive the concept of how that prayer could possibly be answered to have already come and gone. But today we're encouraged and that we're reminded that God, God is, is, is beyond the the frail human limitations that we sometimes put on him. It's not just about the request and the way that we think it ought to be answered. Zechariah' prayer, his, his prayer was heard. And years after he had despaired of its request, God had not forgotten. And God gave them something beyond their greatest expectations. So as we close today, may I encourage you in that thought. Let's be looking, not just in light of our requests for the way we think God ought to answer it, but let's be looking for God's answers. And let's be patient to wait because that's the kind of God that we serve. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the attention of God's people. We pray that you would be honored in how we respond to the word of God, that as we build a foundation upon which to learn everything that the book of Luke has to teach us, that we would be good stewards of, of the scriptures, and that your Holy Spirit would guide us into understanding and application as to your plan and how we fit into it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.